Historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. My name is Itai Tenenbaum. I am both an Israeli and an American, born in Tel Aviv, moved to the United States at the age of 11, and lived in the Washington, D.C. area. At 18, I returned to Israel, served in the IDF mainly as a tank commander. I participated in the first Lebanon war in the 1980s and for years inside Gaza in my month-a-year reserve duty. I run boutique tours to Israel and, of course, this podcast, Inside Israel. In this episode, I'd like to speak to you about targeted killings. It's often called targeted assassinations or even targeted eliminations. On Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024, just two days after New Year's, Salah el-Aruri, the number two leader of Hamas, the deputy of Hamas's political bureau, was killed. He was killed in the heart of Beirut, Lebanon, in the heart of the Hezbollah neighborhood, the Dahya neighborhood. The targeted killing was attributed to Israel. Israel did not confirm or deny. According to Lebanese sources, a drone launched a missile that hit Salah al-Aruri as soon as he got into his car. At the same time, one or two other missiles hit his office. The missiles killed six other Hamas terrorist leaders, including the Hamas head of operations in Lebanon, and an assistant to El Aruri. The explosion was large enough to eliminate all seven terrorists, but it was also precise enough not to harm others or cause damage to other floors in the building. Once a decision that killed El Aruri was made, a team shadowed him 24-7. The Mossad, Israel's security agency, comparable to the American CIA or to the British MI6, gathers all the information needed. Information such as El Aruri's personality, who are his assistants, who are his friends, what are his habits, who's in his immediate family, are they with him in his home or office, and most of all, what are his weak points. Also, what may seem like small, irrelevant details are very important. For example, where does he drink his coffee? Where does he sit when he's in his office? Or where does he sit when he's in his home? What is his routine when he gets up in the morning? These are just a few of the details gathered by the team of operatives shattering their target. All this is essential to ensure the best time and place for the target's elimination. The time and place are also determined by who is at his side before pulling the trigger making sure there aren't elements in his vicinity that you do not want to harm. In the case of the attack on El Aruri's office, the structure was carefully examined, including the thickness of the wall and the width of the windows. This is important in order to activate the most accurate armaments to get the job done. Okay, so now I want to be a little basic and also a little blunt. What is targeted killing? Bluntly, targeted killing is a laundered term for extrajudicial executions that countries use against terrorist elements. Countries do so because often it leads to the collapse of certain parts of your enemy's organization. They do so because the eliminations of a significant leader, what is known in plain words as cutting off the head of the snake, can lead to a deterioration and even chaos within the terror group for a period of time sometimes for a short period of time and sometimes for a longer time. Targeted killings are to take place only against those 
who pose a threat or those who are dispatching the terrorists. Targeted killings will only be activated if other methods of actions have been ruled out and only after solid and reliable information has been gathered that the target is considered a ticking bomb. In other words, the target is planning an attack, or if he or she are not eliminated, the attack will take place. Another core rule is that the harm to non-involved should be minimized as much as possible. Before carrying out a targeted killing, three questions must be answered. One, is the elimination of the specific target cause irreversible or semi-irreversible damage to the organization he is heading or a part of? A second question is, will the killing improve political process? El Aruri was a hardliner that refused to negotiate for the release of Israeli hostages held in Gaza unless Israel complies with all the Hamas's demands. Israel's in the mindset that his death will probably clear the way for resuming more reasonable negotiations. A third question is, are the potential replacements of the target less radical? Will they be willing to take up an approach of negotiations? Once again, we shall find out soon regarding negotiations for the hostages. Probably the best example of a justified target killing was when the United States killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda. Do you think anyone in the free world thought it was unjust or even unlawful? Targeted killings have been used since the early 2000s and continue to be used as we speak. Now, in all honesty, targeted killings were used before the early 2000s. They just weren't called that. And I'd like to give you a few examples of how Israel used eliminations to get rid of its enemy and to cause for a change in the history of the conflict. So the first one I want to tell you about happened in 1973 in an operation called Spring of Youth, which actually was a part of an operation called the Wrath of God. In between the Six-Day War, that's in 1967, and the Yom Kippur War, that was in 1973, the Palestinian Liberation Organization decided to vamp up terror operations against Israel. The PLO chose a new front to strike at Israelis and Jews in general. The new front chosen was the European continent. The PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, carried out several attacks, including hijacking an Al Al airplane to Algeria, attacking an Al Al airplane while on the ground at the Zurich airport in Switzerland, hijacking a Belgian Savannah airline with Jews on board, and the most known and murderous of the PLO attack, carried out by one of their factions named Black September, was the massacre of Israeli athletes in the Munich Olympics in 1972. The Israeli government, late by Golda Meir, decided to launch an operation called Wrath of God, as I mentioned. The goal was to kill all the terrorist leaders who were connected to the Munich massacre and to other attacks. The operation aimed at the elimination of three Fatah leaders, the Fatah being the armed wing of the PLO, Muhammad Yusuf El-Najir, Kamal Adwan, who was responsible for the attacks in Israel, and Kamal Nasser, the PLO spokesman, those were the three targets. On the night between the 9th and 10th of April 1973, Israeli Special Forces Unit called Sayeret Matkal, the Paratroopers Forces, and the Sea Commandos, Shayet et Shloshesre, raided several targets of the Palestinian Liberation Organization in Beirut and in the city of Sidon, both in Lebanon. The Israeli forces were successful in killing 20 members of the PLO, including Yasser Arafat's deputy, Abu Yusuf. The Israeli forces left the Haifa port, Haifa, Israel, on a very dark night. They arrived on Beirut beach on inflatable boats. 
Mossad agents waited for the fighters at the landing site in luxurious American cars leased the day before. The soldiers were divided into several groups, and each group proceeded to their destination, to their targets. The operation lasted two and a half hours, during which the three PLO leaders mentioned were killed in their apartments. Dozens of terrorists securing the premises were also killed. Important intelligence documents were snatched. Two Israeli soldiers were killed in the operation as well. As a result of the operation, and as a result of the targeted killings of the PLO leaders in Europe, carried out by the Mossad operatives, the PLO decided to dismantle their faction of Black September. The targeted killings were deemed a success in the battle of a long and never-ending war. Another targeted killing, which Israel hoped would subdue the raging First Intifada, known as the Palestinian Uprising, was the killing of the PLO number two leader. His name was Khalil al-Wazir, also known as Abu Jihad. He was the deputy of Yasser Arafat and the head of the military wing of the PLO. Abu Jihad was personally responsible for the murder of dozens of Israelis. In 1988, Abu Jihad played a key role in the incitement and planning of the first intifada, which broke out at the end of 1987. Israel, hoping to subdue the intifada, was set to kill Abu Jihad. Abu Jihad resided in the very far country of Tunisia, North Africa. Although located nearly 2,000 miles from Israel, it wasn't too far for the long arm of the Israeli Defense Forces. On the evening of April 16, 1988, two Israeli soldiers from the elite unit Sayeret Matkal, one disguised as a woman, approached the house of Abu Jihad in the city of Tunis. A bodyguard stood outside the house. One of the soldiers, the one disguised as a woman, held a map of the area and approached the guard as if to ask him for directions. The other soldier quickly aimed the gun with a silencer at Abu Jihad's bodyguard's head. One shot hit him with deadly precision. Inside the house, Abu Jihad was at his desk writing orders to the PLO activists. Suddenly, he heard a muffled noise from outside. He took his gun and opened the door. In front of him stood the IDF officer who fired off the gun's full cartridge. The soldiers then went into the house, sparing the lives of Um Jihad, the wife, and the daughter and son as well. They collected documents, uprooted the safe that was in the wall, taking it with them. The operation inside the house ended in less than five minutes. Now, was this a success? The raging intifada only grew stronger. However, five years later, Israeli and Palestinian liberation organization leaders agreed to attempt and reach a political peace agreement called the Asa Agreements. It is still questionable of whether the killing of Abu Jihad, again the number two leader of the PLO, contributed to this diplomatic talks. But perhaps it was another push in Israel's continued effort to convince the Palestinian Liberation Organization to turn from terror acts to dialogue. A third example is that of a man named Abbas Musavi. He was a leader of Hezbollah. Abbas Musavi was a general secretary of the Hezbollah terror organization in Lebanon in the early 1990s. Musavi was a Shia Muslim cleric who was deeply influenced by the Ayatollah Khomeini radical ideology in Iran. Musavi referred to Israel as the cancer of the Middle East. He often spoke publicly, stating that erasing all traces of the state of Israel is one of the objectives of the Hezbollah organization. In the 90s, actually since 1982, the Israel Defense Forces was inside of Lebanon. This was due to the attacks into Israel from Lebanon. Hezbollah struck at the IDF relentlessly, causing death and carnage inside Lebanon. This is a whole different story. It's a whole different complex story that I will tell in an additional episode dealing with Hezbollah specifically.
In any case, Israel was poised to eliminate Musavi. On February 16, 1992, Operation Nighttime took place when Apache helicopters launched Hellfire missiles that directly hit Musavi's motorcade. When Musavi's convoy was spotted leaving the village of Jifshi, the Israeli Air Force received the order to take off towards Lebanon. The targeted killing of Musavi was the first killing of a senior Hezbollah official in Lebanon. Israel hoped this would cripple Hezbollah, at least for a while, but instead, Hassan Nasrallah was appointed general secretary of the Hezbollah. Hezbollah's immediate revenge was not long in coming. A rocket barrage was fired towards Israel, and in one of the barrages, a five-year-old girl was killed. In addition, Hezbollah attached an explosive device to the car of the security officer at the Israeli embassy in Ankara, Turkey, killing the diplomat named Ehud Saddam. A month later, in March 1992, a car bomb exploded under the Israeli embassy building in Buenos Aires in Argentina. The explosion killed 29 people, some of the Israelis, and others were local residents. Musavi's replacement, Hassan Nasrallah, still serves as the head of the Hezbollah and has given Israel hell for more than 30 years. No one in Israel thinks that the killing of Musavi had any success in even weakening Hezbollah. Quite the contrary. Hezbollah only gained strength with Nasrallah. The last example of a targeted killing I'd like to speak about is the killing of the entire Hamas leadership in the early 2000s. Sheikh Ahmad Yassin was the spiritual leader responsible for what the Palestinians called the Al-Aqsa Intifada. This was no intifada, no civil uprising, but rather a terror campaign of suicide bombers. Between 2001 and 2004, the suicide bombing carried out by the Palestinian terrorists killed over 1,000 Israelis. It was an era of terror. The suicide bombers were a brutal and deadly weapon that was easy for Hamas and other terrorists to implement and very difficult for Israel to defend against. Most noted was the attack at the Park Hotel in Atanya on Passover Eve 2002, in which 29 people celebrating Passover Seder were murdered by a suicide bomber. An additional horrific and traumatic bombing was of a bus in Jerusalem carrying many children. On August 19, 2003, Ra'ad Misak, a Palestinian suicide bomber sent by Hamas, boarded the number two public bus. The terrorist blew himself up in the middle of the bus. The bus was packed with passengers, among them a group of Haredi, ultra-Orthodox children, who were on their way back from the Western Wall. 22 people were murdered. Israel was at a loss. How do we stop this murderous campaign? It was clear that the suicide bombers had no issue with death, and once they breached the border with Israel, it was too late to stop them. But behind the suicide bombers hid an entire terrorist network. Israel understood that taking out the leadership would be the most effective tool of stopping the murderer's campaign. One by one, the entire leadership of Hamas and other organizations were targeted and killed. Among the leaders killed was the head of Hamas, Sheikh Ahmad Yassin. It took a couple of years, but the methods of targeted killing put the fear of death into the leaders, into the new leaders, and created a demoralization among Palestinian organizations. By 2004, after a long and bloody war, the Palestinian suicide terror campaign was called off. The targeted killings seemed to have been successful, but not without condemnations worldwide. Israel brought this method of operation in the early 2000s. In the first year, Israel received many condemnation in the international arena. As terrorism became a worldwide issue, other countries and armies began to use the same exact method. For instance, the United States began to carry out targeted killings against the heads of Al-Qaeda following 9-11 and the inability to bring the heads of Al-Qaeda to trial. George Bush, 
President George Bush, gave the Presidential Executive Order, and the CIA went to work. Using armed drones, the CIA had killed several Al-Qaeda commanders. In 2002, the local commander in Yemen, Abu Ali al-Qariti, was eliminated. In 2005, the commander of the Overseas Operations Unit in Pakistan, Abu Rabia Harnaza. And in 2006, the commander of al-Qaeda in Iraq was eliminated, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. When Obama took office, he stepped it up. As a matter of fact, between 2004 and 2014 or so, in 10 years, the United States carried out more than 400 drone strikes against the tribal areas of Pakistan. The U.S. targeted and killed many in its war in Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, and other places. The United States even targeted U.S. citizens turned terrorists. At least seven of them were killed. Obama's most significant kill was, of course, Osama bin Laden. President Trump also used the method. His most significant kill was the Iranian commander of the Revolutionary Guard, a major terrorist named Qassam Soleimani. So now we come to the question of morality. Are targeted killings moral? In dealing with the morality of targeted killings, we must take into account the way of operations of the terror organizations such as Hamas. The Hamas fighting is almost always conducted in a civilian type of environment. It's important to understand this. In the current warfare, Hamas operates intentionally from civilian areas. And this is due to two major reasons. First of all, Hamas terrorists know that we, Israel, don't want to harm civilians. So they hide behind them, feeling protected. Second, if indeed civilians are killed, it serves a terrorist purpose. The world community is critical and appalled with Israel. But in hiding behind civilians, Hamas is behaving in a manner that is clearly against both morality and against international law. Therefore, they are actually the ones to bear the moral responsibility for any harm to innocent civilians. When the Israeli Defense Forces soldiers are tasked with a target to be eliminated, there are several moral questions they deal with. First question, what are all the possible operational methods of action? Is it possible to capture the person targeted and bring them to justice? If yes, that is the obvious choice. The second question is of the risks posed to our own soldiers. Can we capture the target without having casualties on our side? Once again, if yes, the capture is preferred. Third, and this needs to be clarified thoroughly, based on existing intelligence the Israeli Defense Forces has at a given moment, does taking out of the intended target pose a real danger of massive loss among innocent bystanders? As already mentioned, Hamas and other terror organizations know this well, and hence are always using human shields, schools, hospitals, and such. These three questions raise serious operational and moral dilemmas. Before a decision is made to take out a target, all are taken into account. Many nations and leaders feel as if they can lecture and condemn Israel, especially amusing are condemnations from regimes such as Russia, China, and even North Korea. But whoever feels they should propose moral principles should also propose methods to translate these principles into defensive actions. And I ask them, what better way do you have to defend your people and your homeland? What would you do to stop murderous terrorists? And now I come to the question of whether targeted killings are allowed by international law. So look, there's no definition in an international formal document or even in international law that positively determines what targeted killings are. Therefore, the tendency 
is that each and every country examines each case individually to determine the danger possessed by the intended target, and if it is kosher to eliminate that target. No Western country, such as England, France, or Germany, have created laws that deal directly with targeted killings. The United States has, or I should say, kind of dealt with it. It's called an executive order. The president can and does give an order to eliminate a target. But also, international organizations dealt with it, such as the Red Cross. Rules were stated in the rules of war, mainly dealt with with the Red Cross. And they say this, during a conflict, a nation, a country, is indeed allowed to take out, to kill, an enemy combatant, whether they serve in a formal army or in a military group such as a terrorist group, whether they are wearing a uniform or civilian clothing. This sounds simple, but what if a country like Israel is fighting a terror organization, Hamas, that doesn't even take into consideration the rules of the war, the rules of the Geneva Conventions? The Red Cross Committee says that only when the person is firing at you, conducting warfare with you, are you allowed to eliminate them. In other words, when they're not firing at you, you can't take them out. Israel, with the backing of the Israeli Supreme Court, says, no, it doesn't work that way. If someone fired at us and then goes to work somewhere else, he or she is still a target. Obviously, they'll do it again, mainly when you're not looking. The United States administration agrees with the Israeli stand. Supreme Court of Israel determined it is kosher to eliminate enemy combatants, terrorists, if A, there's an international conflict in which Israel is fighting beyond Israel's borders, if the target is fighting against Israel, even if he or she is not shooting at the actual moment, he or she are a target. The decision to eliminate someone needs to be in proportion to the military objective. So what the Supreme Court of Israel says is that if there are many innocent people that may be hurt, then it might not be proportional and then you should not do it. If you can arrest the target, do so, unless it'll cost a lot of casualties not only among the Palestinians, but also among Israeli soldiers, was another of the Supreme Court's decision. They also said, if innocent bystanders are hurt, the Israeli Defense Forces must conduct an investigation into the matter by objective, uninvolved Israeli Defense Forces officers. Look, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, operates according to clear standards for marking who is a terrorist that is targeted for elimination. The IDF carries out targeted killings only when those targeted are labeled a ticking bomb. That is to say, people who are in the process from which there's a real danger of an attack on the citizens of the state of Israel. A person is a ticking bomb not only when he or she puts on an explosive belt and makes their way to an Israeli site to carry out a murderous terrorist attack, but also in the earlier stages of the practical process, like providing the means of the attack, the bomb itself, to others, or when organizing the bombs, travel arrangements, and the like. This is very distant terminology, that of the Red Cross. Once again, is the killing of bin Laden, who never personally fired directly at Americans, is that lawful? You better believe it is. Killing any terrorist is justified, once again, providing they are a ticking bomb and cannot be brought to justice. Targeted killings are neither an act of revenge nor an act of punishment. Targeted killings are an act of defending against danger to your citizens from a terror group or an individual. Okay, so now we come to our last question. Is it effective? Is targeted killings effective? And let's look at three examples. Let's go back to the suicide bombing campaign of Hamas and the Tanzim of the Fatah 
in the early 2000s against Israel. Israel, as a result, as mentioned, killed the entire Hamas leadership. And again, as a result of that, Hamas called off their suicide bombings. Instead, Hamas vamped up their rocket capability and prepared, apparently, for years for their October 7th onslaught. On the other hand, the PA, the Palestinian Authority, leading the Tanzim and leading other suicide bombings against Israel, called it off completely, ceased from using military campaigns against Israel, and cooperated with Israel security-wise. It wasn't just due to the targeted killings, but there's no doubt that the targeted killings helped to make that assessment. And now to the example of what I began with, which is the killing of the number two person in Hamas, El Aruri, in Lebanon. The assessment in Israel is that the killing of El Aruri will enable, within a few weeks, another hostage deal. The reason being that El Aruri strongly opposed any deal that did include an end to the war and release of all the Palestinian prisoners in Israeli prison. Now that he's been removed, perhaps there's chance for a hostage deal. If so, the target killing was successful. Thank you for listening. Please share this and other episodes. This episode and all others can be listened to on all podcast media sources, such as Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and more. It is also possible to listen on InsideIsrael.fm. The Inside Israel podcast would love your support. If willing, please log into InsideIsrael.fm and click on the Support Us button.